0: This is an ABC podcast. There there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing.
1: Not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience.
0: Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives.
2: I've had a gut for I have had an absolute gutful.
1: Uh, Look, I've had a bit of a gutful too. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of Radio National Drive, an afternoon briefing on the news channel. Joining you free from the hard lockdown, although lots of restrictions still here in Victoria, and joining you from Wurundjeri country.
2: Yes, you're free as a bird. I don't know why you've had a gutful. I'm Frank Kelly from <laughs> RM Breakfast, locked down in my living room on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And I'll be here for another month at least. That's the news we got this week. Soon we're going to be joined in the party room by Shane Wright, senior economics correspondent with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Because, of course, PK, these lockdowns come at a big price to governments via the disaster payments. And we got some good news for people on that front this week, but also to the economy more broadly. This week, too, Labor unveiled a shift in their tax policies that's ruffled a few feathers. We'll be talking to Shane about that, too. First, though, all you Victorians, South Australians, as I said, free as a bird, happy for that, happy for you. New South Wales, though, at least a month ago, go. PK, it must feel pretty good to be out of lockdown, doesn't it? You've vanquished the Delta variant in Victoria. Oh,
1: I think it's absolutely the uh, most wonderful thing to be able to have a short, sharp lockdown a- a- out of the alternative, which you're living through, which is a long lockdown that ends up being quite bleak over the winter period, right? So yes, I think that the strategy that Victoria adopted, as did South Australia, then that's a Liberal state. So this shows that it's not about political colour, it's actually just about strategy. What works with this variant with a very under-vaccinated population was the right strategy. So much so that interestingly this week, the Prime Minister, has endorsed the short, sharp lockdown strategy, uh, which I think is extraordinary given the kind of rhetoric we've heard and the lockdown wars we've heard in the past, it seems to me. Yeah, the gold standard and all that. All of that palaver. The Morrison government now has conceded that that approach, which is not you know, I find so frustrating that it's been really entrenched in sort of left-right politics because it's not. If you decide that you can't live with the Delta variant, it's about how to get rid of it quickly, right? And, you know, I think that we we really saw that this week with Victoria coming out of the lockdown earlier, which I think has exposed the New South Wales strategy of waiting too long, which was the wrong strategy. So, New South Wales is in a long lockdown. It had to ask for help. It went to the National Cabinet and said, give us some of your vaccines, other states, because we have a serious problem on our hands and they're right. Brad Hazard was, quote, disturbed that the other states would not divert any of their Pfizer doses to Sydney, which is seeing, of course, the record cases. Now, while the Victorian government might not feel like sharing their vaccines and you can understand why, can I say, uh, particularly in Victoria, where we've had five lockdowns, we do constantly have cases um, bursting out. But the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, didn't give the vaccines up, but was happy to give a different kind of support to New South Wales.
0: And we're not not here today boasting. We're not here today lecturing. We're not here today doing any of that. Uh, In fact, what we'll be able to do now, once we get our close contacts cleared, because that's a big job. But once we're through that, then we may well be able to provide some support to Sydney Around contact tracing and some of that, some of that work.
1: So he's not boasting, he's not lecturing, but he kind of is, <laughs> wasn't he, Fran? It I was a bit of. Kind of was I'm boasting. not doing that. Uh, look, I think that you can't remove that from the collective pain victorians have felt and the premier himself after getting bashed every day for such a long period of time in that long lockdown and really that became so politicized such criticism from the federal government and kept getting uh, his nose rubbed into it that new south wales was you know the best ever state now look the shoes on the other foot and clearly that is making him well boastful but he knows not to be boastful <laughs> Mm. He knows you don't do that, right? So then the Pfizer thing happened. I know there's been a lot of controversy around that. I personally, can I just say, because I think people are interested to know, I think it is unfortunate that the states couldn't divert some of their doses to Sydney. I think we are all in this together. Uh, I think what you're suffering there in Sydney is an acute problem and I think we should collectively try to help people live And that's what vaccines are about, not just lockdowns, it's about living. And if we can help people, it's like, you know, it's like sending resources during a bushfire uh, to a state where there's a big bushfire. Yeah, Um, which we do all the time. And we should. But either way, it didn't happen. And it's raised all sorts of controversies about the way that we broadly are going to manage this virus, uh, the the way that... um, we deal with our supply. The government then moved in, the federal government, and gave some of your their contingencies to you. You, you, as in not you, Fran Kelly, but New South Wales. <laughs> but you're there, and and I think that was a good idea. And in lieu of receiving Pfizer from the other states, the Premier Gladys Berejiklian then opted to redirect around what was it forty thousand doses from regional New South Wales to give to students in Year Twelve in hotspot areas. What did you make of it, Fran?
2: Well, there's a lot of concern and sympathy, I think, for the HSC students, as there was last year too, in Victoria, where the kids were going through so much. It's a tough time. We all know that. So Gladys Berejiklian has decided not just that Year 12 students will be able to come back in the hotspots on August the 16th or across Greater Sydney broadly, but in the hotspots, the actual HSC students will be given Pfizer, if we can get our hands on Pfizer. So in order to make sure that can happen, she's actually sort of purloining it, pulling it back from some of the... The, um, regional, you know, GP clinics and other places in New South Wales. So that was a, a move that she could take to try and get some of the state reserves of Pfizer uh, back to where they're needed most in the hot spots. But, you know, all it does is draw attention to the fact, PK, we've talked about this before, with Pfizer, we simply don't have enough of it in the country. We won't get enough, it won't really start to flow well until October. But the other thing we are very aware of now is we have ample supply of AstraZeneca. And this week, on breakfast, I spoke to Professor Christine McCartney. She's the Director of the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, but importantly, she's also a long-time member of ATAGI, and that's the Expert Immunisation Committee that uh, the Prime Minister has been so focused on and that this week changed their view slightly in terms of emphasis. They really changed their emphasis on who should or shouldn't get the AstraZeneca vaccine. the the risks of a clotting condition after AstraZeneca are very, very low. They're like 150,000. If you choose to get vaccinated, which many people will, because that risk is similar to doing other things that we do every day, like taking an antibiotic or stepping out in our car, if you choose to just be aware of what to look out for after vaccination, that's really, really important. But whether it's Pfizer or AstraZeneca, either way you're going to get a very effective vaccine and it's absolutely... Um, you know, imperative to think about that now, try to make your appointment, you know, jump in that queue for the vaccine. And that's Christine McCartney from ATAGI, and that's the message I think people have been wanting and waiting to hear from experts like her, from the ATAGI committee, from our health, senior health officials, from our prime ministers, from uh, any bloody expert you can get your hand on, basically, (laughs) start speaking that clearly and that strongly about AstraZeneca being a very, very effective vaccine with a very, very low chance of uh, blood clotting, which, of course, is, is a terrible health issue. If you do encounter, it's a very, very low risk. But at the moment, the risk benefit has shifted, particularly in Sydney with the outbreak of the Delta variant that we haven't been able to contain. There are apparently three million doses of AstraZeneca in clinics and hubs around the country. But even though that's true, PK, I'm still hearing, I don't know about you, but I'm hearing from listeners every day that they still can't get a vaccine jab. So this slow rollout is not just about hesitancy around AstraZeneca. It's also about access. And there are still some lumps and bumps in this rollout, which mean some who want it can't get it. I'm going to give you one example. Uh, I can't get an appointment. This is one listener. I can't get an appointment anywhere in Southern Tassie for my first AstraZeneca vaccination. I've been told by the public health hotline to ring in a week or so to see whether the vaccines are available. Another person said, people can't get a booking for their jab. I have a colleague from the Central Coast who tried for three hours and ended up in tears. So what I'm getting... On breakfast, from the listeners, is people are really sick of being told to do the right thing, get a vaccination, the implication being that if you haven't, you're either irresponsible, unpatriotic, or just stupid. Um, last weekend, the, the Prime Minister addressed the LNP State Council in Queensland and he said to, to people gathered, We've got it sorted. Well, I think it's fair to say, PK. They don't have it sorted still. We are doing better. The rollout is speeding up. There'll be more than a million vaccines administered next week across the country. The states, particularly New South Wales, from necessity, increasing the intensity of the AZ rollout for obvious reasons. But there are still some problems which shouldn't be there. And that's, you know, all governments, federal and state, need to acknowledge that and just get on with it. Stop telling people things are sorted when they're not.
1: Yeah, and look, you can't help but mention the now infamous line that's plagued and and dogged the Prime Minister, which is that it's not a race um, to get vaccinated, right? You know, they keep telling us, uh, the Liberals, that this is... He, did, he was referring to, uh, you know, the vaccines being approved by the TGA. Yep, originally that's the case. Originally. But then he did use it about the actual rollout. He did and they did. And now he's told us to... You know treat getting vaccinated like it's an olympic race and you i walked, walked that into was, that one didn't oh, he? oh my lordy i was like oh you just said that now everyone's gonna say so now it's the olympics which of course We all did because it was too easy. Uh, But either way, I'm pleased that they have now decided it is a race because it was always a race. This is a virus that keeps popping up, is highly infectious and vaccinating is the only answer uh, to actually, you know, keeping yourself potentially safe. So, yes, I'm I'm really pleased that they've realised it's a very big race, uh, an Olympic style race. That, that
2: that, That must have been a tough call for Scott Morrison this week, PK, because, you know, politicians and prime ministers, you know, love to get in on the Olympic action. We've had all those gold medals. There's a lot of excitement. And I noticed he hadn't really been sort of bathing himself in gold. And then he did because how can you resist really? But, of course, exactly what he probably knew would happen did happen, which is the obvious question which I heard you ask and plenty of other people ask straight away, which is, ah, so now it is a race. And um, it kind of just ruined the whole patriotic moment, I think. (laughs) That's pretty funny,
1: anyway, instead of focusing on that, think about the gold, gold, gold in the pool and beyond because it's so least, good, isn't it? Yeah, I know that's that's kept me feeling good. and watching that with my kids during our lockdown the last days of it was you know it kept us kind of
2: going yeah. I think that's right. And you know, PK, there was absolute fury around the country this week when people who were in lockdown in three states looked on and saw people protesting at rallies around the country, rallies against lockdown, some rallies against vaccine, they're rallying generally that kind of flavour. Uh, at one rally, there was even an LNP backbench of George Christensen up in, up in Queensland, up in Mackay, the anti-lockdown rally there, stood alongside QAnon supporters. Uh, Most Australians, I think, were really angry and worried about this, worried that it might trip, you know, more cases in Melbourne, more cases in Sydney where the protests got very, very violent. And I really didn't think that the condemnation of those rallies by our leaders, uh, the Prime Minister included, um, was tough enough. You can think back and look at some of the ministers, you know, condemning the Black Lives Matters protests. A lot of people weren't happy about those either. Um, but, but really, I, I think that should have been in much stronger terms condemned George Christensen as a politician, a federal government politician, uh, should have been castigated, I think, for attending a rally and certainly for encouraging those in the, um, you know, the right to freedom of speech to come out on the streets in Sydney in great numbers as they did when that city is is in such dire predicament with the Delta variant. Uh, I just thought we needed a much stronger signal and now there's rumblings of more anti-lockdowns to come.
1: Yeah, the, look, the, the problem with that protest, well, there's so many problems, but the one in Sydney really alarmed me. Here we have the highly infectious Delta variant and it just just was the sort of the the opposite of what you'd hope people were doing at this stage and also the selfishness of it you know you do it and you risk a longer lockdown you're not going to get your freedom you're going to get less freedom um i've i've seen people make the point that there's a contradiction between the denouncing of this particular protest and the uh, the lack of denouncing by some including me of the black lives matter protests I want to make a couple of points here, which is where I can make points um, to those critics. I'll tell you one massive difference. At the Black Lives Matter protest, right, which I still think protesting during a pandemic, not a great idea, right? Yeah. I've been sympathetic at the cause, what they were raising, not not actually getting on the streets during a pandemic. But either way, social distancing, wearing masks, trying at least, still, you know, uh, definitely had risks, but trying not to spread the virus. You didn't see that at this protest and anyone who thinks it's equivalent isn't actually comparing the same thing because what well, they were doing looking, was really I mean they're different. not looking
2: at that crowd in Sydney which was a massive packed in a tiny area everyone close up together shouting yelling spitting presumably which if you're infected with the virus is not a great thing you know it was out of control and i agree with you a completely different spectacle if you like in comparison to the black lives matters rallies and how they were conducted even That's so right. i agree with you i don't think rallies during the time of a pandemic is a great idea
1: Well, you know, you're trying to not hang out together, are you? It's kind of the opposite of the concept. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. (laughs) Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room.
0: Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with the two ladies of radio.
2: (laughs) The two ladies of radio. I love that, Shane. Shane, over the weekend, uh, the government rejected, again, a request by the New South Wales Treasurer Dominic Perrottet to reinstate JobKeeper to support people through the extended lockdown in Sydney, which has even been more extended now. Now, the the reason the Feds give is that JobKeeper is an expensive program. It was rolled out last year when the whole nation needed it. And this, um, this new government COVID disaster payment is quicker to roll out and it's more targeted. Here's the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce.
1: Because the money we spend now is the money we don't have later on, and that has, and we have to deal with that because that's part of how we deal with the virus. It's all very well saying, "Well, we're going to throw money out of the door, throw money out the door, throw money out the door," but there comes a time we've actually got to pay the people who lent you the money back. So okay. we have to be a lot more targeted in how we do that, and that is what the prime minister and the treasurer are doing.
2: Now, that's a really interesting answer, I think, because, Shane, of course, they are throwing money out the door. And this week, um, the government changed the payment again and lifted it to $750 a week or 450 a week, I think it is, which is basically the, the original rate of JobKeeper. So there's no difference in the money going to individuals, but the difference is they need to be more targeted. Is that a concession that the routing that went on within JobKeeper and the fact that some companies were able to, in fact, make a profit from JobKeeper during the pandemic um, was a problem. Is that really why they're keeping away from it? Uh, but they don't want to say that out loud.
0: No, because to say it out loud would be to a concession that, oh, hold on, yeah, it wasn't perfect, as we've yeah. been yeah. saying. To the tune
2: <laughs> of $12 billion, didn't we learn this week from the Parliamentary Budget Office? Uh, t-
0: well, that's for a quarter. Um, it will be substantially more once we get into the details. Part of it, of the success of, of these, this cost of JobKeeper was the fact that the economy came back much quicker than anyone expected. So you've got to actually factor in the way that we clamped down on COVID through 2020 and there wasn't such a, a major economic impact as we've seen in other parts of the world. So that's part of it, but definitely the way it was structured where you funnelled money into the company rather than to directly to the employee did allow for this this routing by mm. some very well known companies that uh, have made profits private schools that have done well while also increasing fees to their to parents you can see the problems but that's no one dare speak that name. Uh, if you're the federal treasurer or the federal pri- or the prime minister, because that would be a concession. Oops, we got something wrong, yeah. and we've wasted a uh, a boatload of money. What so about though, you get the to this, this program? That...
2: What about the argument that the bounce back of the economy was very much because of the way JobKeeper, you know, kept workers tethered to their employer? The employer paid the money through and the critics who were saying bring back JobKeeper to do that um, are saying we need that kind of strong link between the employer and the employee? Does that make sense to you?
0: Partially, but I think... It ignores and and I've been banging on this for some time and now I'm not so lonely now because a lot more people <laughs> have worked this out and that is the closure of the international border has dramatically changed the job market in this country and that's why you're getting people, some businesses complaining, oh, no, we can't find staff but we don't want to pay them anymore uh, mm. to try and you know, flush out some more people. That's been an ongoing problem in this country for about a decade but the closure of the international border has really changed key dynamics of the labour market. And it's the labour market that's really bounced back much better than anyone anticipated. Partly it's job keeping. I'm not saying it's not, but it is the elephant in the room, which is where you've got uh, 250,000, 300,000 permanent people not coming into the country, plus anywhere up to five to 700,000 part-time people coming into the country, be they Kiwis, be they international students, be they backpackers, be they short-term uh, visas. Mm. That's a real big issue going on in terms of the jobs market. It's a little bit separate yeah. to the overall economy. Yep.
1: What I think that, you know, if- being a politics podcast. I know you do the economic correspondence, but you are a political man. Help me out here. This was announced and I interviewed the Treasurer, Josh Friedberg. He says, yeah, we announced it because the Sydney lockdown was extended, but it will uh, will be used in the future to go right back to at the start of any lockdown in any state if there are more. And the government has endorsed short, sharp lockdowns, So there will be more, I suspect. So how should South Australians and Victorians feel about that? Because they they didn't get this higher seven hundred and fifty bucks a week.
0: Look, and they are well within their rights to stomp on their stomp up and down. Because if you remember, and we go back to when JobKeeper ended, and Labor was saying, no, you still need JobKeeper or a version of it because something might go wrong, and you had Josh Frydenberg having a crack at Jim Chalmers saying, oh, look, woe is you. Look, things are going going well. And you think of the iterations now we've had of some sort of payment because of what's gone on in terms of the control of Delta. This government keeps saying, oh, we're fleet fleet of foot and we're changing. They can't get to a point where we've got a policy that fits. So it's always changing. So you get to this situation where if you're a South Australian or Victorian and you were put out of work, say, if you're out of work for a fortnight uh, in Victoria and you're looking at the money that's going to be handed out to someone in Fairfield or Parramatta, then you have well within your rights to go, oh, come on, guys get this stuff organized and, and get it right. the first type, not the third or fourth we're on I think we're on to the fourth iteration of this sort of payment system since this started.
2: I mean, it's fair to say, though, that, you know, we have all had learned to pivot uh, through this pandemic and it brings sort of surprises. Now, you know, Labor and others say all these different changes and updating of the payments is is not doing anything for consumer confidence. People are thinking, does the government have this or do they not have this? Um, But is it fair for a government to be, you know, quick responding as things change? And what's changed here is that New South Wales, the sort of the economic powerhouse, if you like, of the country, is this lockdown is going on. And on and on, much further than they they hoped, of course, and and therefore you know they're they realising they need to pump more of this stimulus out there. A to keep people home, and B to keep the economy stimulated.
0: I don't know if a pivot would help somebody living in Whittlesea or South Morang yeah, in Melbourne, point. and they're out two or three hundred bucks a week relative to someone in the Georges River. Like I like that's the lived experience for these people, and so you go right. Yeah, I I, I can understand the political argument and you need to be fleet of foot. And the government, for all the criticism over the last 18 months, have proven that they can move relatively quickly, even if it takes a a barrage of argument to get to that point. But Mm. that's not for someone in those suburbs. You go, hold on, I've got to pay the mortgage. I've got to pay the cap. I've got to get the kids to school it doesn't wash quite so well.
2: Yeah, it's no. not fair. Um, Shane, there's been a lot of talk this week about recession, are we or aren't we? That The, the Treasurer has been hammering home just how well Australia recovered from the pandemic. By and large, the employment rate you mentioned before, it's down below 5% for the first time in 12 years, an incredible result. Um, is all that progress at stake again now, given until recently more than half the country was locked down. We've got economists like Gareth Aird at the Combank predicting 200,000 jobs could be lost in New South Wales during this prolonged lockdown. We are clearly headed for a negative September quarter, even the Treasurer is not trying to dodge that, but it takes two negative quarters to call it a recession. Um, Many are predicting we're headed that way. Do you agree and is that a disaster?
0: It's not a disaster, except, of course, if you're the person out of work um, or you're the one running the business and there's no one coming through the the door. And it it would be an unusual recession in terms of, again, it's been created by health orders. There's a a hell of a lot of money still sloshing around in the economy. We know how much uh, households are sitting on in terms of their savings, although they're going to be starting starting to eat into those things. And we're still trapped inside the boundaries of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. We can't get out of the country to spend money anywhere else. So I'm still not convinced that we'll end up with a negative quarter in December. Even if, uh, say, New South Wales starts to reopen in October of some sort, like worst case scenario for you, Fran, sorry to say. I'll say. You
2: should <laughs> if, see my face to... as you said that.
0: But if, if we're opening in February, you can see, and we saw it um, last year, the pent-up demand from people as they get to enjoy the October sunshine, there will be a fair bit of money flying out the door, even into the services sector, even to people wanting to get a new uh, haircut, like, one of the, thats one mm. of those things that you cannot—you mm. can't repeat. But there will be a rush into that space. You could see that really giving a burst of activity into the December quarter, which will probably save that December quarter. So I'm not convinced we're going to end up with those two quarters. Of course, if we're getting into the second half of November and there's still heavy restrictions across Greater Sydney, um, poor Fran, or if something blows up in Victoria or Queensland. Then you yeah, right, all bets are off. Like you could end up in that situation again.
2: Yeah, I okay. tell you what, if I can't get a haircut before November I'm in real trouble. <laughs>
1: oh, Fran, you're gonna you're gonna look like Super cool, like indie. <laughs> All
2: right, Labor has announced <laughs> That's Peter Paul and Mary.
1: <laughs> I think you. I think you're going to look hot, Fran. Labor has announced some major fiscal policy changes. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has revealed the party will support the coalition's Stage Three tax cuts for high income earners, and will also abandon its two signature policies that that it took to the last election. It's very controversial policies: changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax. That you know, kind of dogged them the whole campaign. Finance Minister Simon Birmingham called it the most agonising, the most half-hearted concession in Australian politics ever. Uh, Shane Wright, what does it signal to you that the Labor Party has conceded these pretty key policies?
0: I think Simon Birmingham forgot John Howard's concession about Medicare. It's here to stay. That was a pretty big concession uh, rather than a tax change. But uh, I'll I'll leave the uh, historical political argument to one side. The problem, and you can see from the government's perspective, is, oh, damn, Labor has decided they think they, they want to win the next election. They're not giving us a wedge, say, on the stage three tax cuts, put aside the economic arguments around them. The negative gearing one, and this is, I'll get slightly into the weeds here, the negative gearing and the capital gains concession, the interaction of them. And this is from the Reserve Bank and every independent economist in the country who said that's been an issue with our property market. Negative gearing at the moment because interest rates are so low is not a major issue. The capital gains tax one, though, is one that's like it, it is sad to see both sides conceding, oh, look, a policy that was put together in 1998 to push money into the share market and make us a, a whole nation of shareholders has actually led us to become a, a country of property spruikers and Ponzi uh, activists that is economically it 's sad, but you can see the politics of it is this is Albanese going right we 're going to take away any chance of a real wedge on that side of things and focus on the on the government so the politics is really interesting. But the economics is a bit disappointing, it's particularly yeah. around the capital gains tax concession, which desperately needs to be changed. It de- well, even, from, even from the Henry tax reform package, they said, look, the way it was structured back in 1998 made sense. It makes no sense now. And going forward, it's just pummeling money into the property market. And where, what is it, today, the median house price in Canberra and Melbourne is now above a, bit, a million dollars. Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, yeah. Sorry, and, and,
0: that's just and, stupid.
2: And there's real equity issues too around the whole negative gearing concessions about how many houses some people and investors have got and therefore how much concession they're getting. So that's why it was Labor territory. There's, Two things about this is Anthony Albanese dumping these, you know, in danger of just sort of, uh, you know, relitigating the last uh, election. I mean, clearly what he's trying to do is cut out the scare campaign, which hurt them so badly in 2019. Um, But then he's got the base to deal with. I had so many people on breakfast writing in saying things like, you know, if you know better than the other lot, what's the point? So he'll have to address that issue for, you know, the Labor heartland. He's signalling he still wants to address housing affordability through through better supply of social housing. You know, will that be enough, Shane? What does Anthony Albanese need to do here now to fill the gap of the policies he's just dumped and prove his Labor credentials again?
0: Well, you're exactly right. The whole argument about the, the heartland giving up on CGT and negative gearing... I'm just not convinced that's where the voters, say, around Gladstone or Rockhampton or out of Brisbane or in suburban Perth are going to be going, oh, my God, I'm going to go vote for the Liberal Party now. They're already doing that. They had to differentiate themselves. And if you're on that side of politics, the vote will end up with the Greens if they really want to protest and will funnel back to Labor. That's the uh, abrupt political calculation that the party's taken. Policy-wise, Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher are still... Working on policies to generate some revenue, and both sides of government know they need revenue somewhere along the line to pay for some signature policies that they can put up alongside the campaign that they, which is clearly what's coming about uh, Scott Morrison's handling of the vaccine rollout of, of the whole pandemic from the health perspective. So, where are it's, they going to
2: get that revenue? Where are they going to get well, that? Well, they
0: keep talking about, say, multinational tax. Uh, which it is like the pot of gold at the end of the magic pudding or magic pudding if you want to take the australian version of that that story and both sides have tapped into that saying oh yeah this is where it's going it's interesting that we we talk and albanese was asked this this week about uh where's the money coming from god forbid the last two budgets have had more than 100 billion in spending which haven't been paid for. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you've just you played Barnaby Joyce talking about somewhere we've got to pay for all this. He's the Deputy Prime Minister of a government that is running a deficit which will be about 150 billion dollars mm. last year. Yeah, last financial year will be somewhere between 100 and 150 billion this year. On our way to trillion dollars in debt, both sides have really given up on, on paying for anything. Even t- this week's announcement. We're talking about, say, billion a billion dollars a week in support. Crickets. Crickets, mm-hmm. I tell mm-hmm. you, in terms yeah. of where are we paying for this? Could you imagine, go back two years, like we were having discussions about whether how the government would pay for a $500 million policy that was $500 million over a year, let alone a billion a week.
2: Are you saying uh, we will never hear the term debt and deficit again in our lifetime? We, Ooh.
0: Big no. call, I know. But if anyone tries to bring it up, the government is the one that's in the the biggest problem because it's the one that ran that whole campaign. And Labor tried at the last election to say it had fiscal rectitude on its side. Like, you can't run that argument with a straight face anywhere. And, like, Barnaby Joyce can keep talking about how we've got to pay for it. He's got no plan to pay for it. Mm. None. And he's the deputy PM. Scott Morrison palmed off, there was one question to him yesterday about this. And he just oh, well, this, we've got to do it. Okay. Uh, mm. And just if you think back, I think since the last time we spoke and the intergenerational report came out, um, and you can see deficit after deficit after deficit and it would be absolutely catastrophic in terms of those numbers if not for the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is paying us a a hell of a lot for some red dirt out of Western Australia right at the moment. Mm. Like this whole, the budget itself could fall apart even more really quickly uh, depending on global factors.
1: Shane, always good to pick your enormous brain. Thanks for
0: joining us. It's always a pleasure to deal with the ladies of the radio. (laughs)
2: Thanks, Shane. See you.
0: Cheers. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker.
1: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Alice, I love the name Alice, who writes... I would like to know what impact Scott Morrison, being the Prime Minister for New South Wales, might have on federal politics. Come the next election, would it be an asset for Labor to be led by someone born and bred outside of Sydney and Melbourne? Does this make Albanese's leadership more precarious?
2: Mm, what do you think, PK? Well, <laughs> I l- asked let me state it. Stay, and I'll l- answer let- it. No, let me state the obvious. I mean, the fact is that most prime ministers in Australia in sort of modern political times have come from Sydney or Melbourne, Victoria or New South Wales, with the exception of Kevin Rudd from Queensland, here to help. Um, But all the others that I can think of in recent times have come from Melbourne or Sydney. So that's just for starters. That's what happens. That's different, I think, to this notion of the prime minister for New South Wales, though, and whether that's going to have any kind of blowback, particularly in Victoria, which is an important state. At an election, of course.
1: It's going to have blowback in Victoria. Absolutely it is. And in fact, it's going to be one of the main campaigning strategies, particularly in some of these marginal Victorian seats, uh, that's run against the Prime Minister. Really a targeted campaign that paints him as only thinking about Sydney and not caring about the plight of Victorians. That's going to be the campaign. And I do think, and I come from that Melbourne prison, it will hurt the coalition. And I'll give you some evidence of how we know uh, we know that they are alive to this being a problem. As we were talking about with Shane, you know, this big announcement was made, of course, changing all of the payments, you know, making them higher for people um, to deal with, you know, being out of work because of being in lockdown, largely going obviously to Sydney, right? But part of that package was this business package and you would have seen the announcement had Dan Andrews' name on it, it had the Prime Minister's and Josh Frydenberg's. There's a reason for that. The federal government knows it needs to repair that image. It needs to fix it. Now, whether they can, I'm not sure because that long lockdown, the collective memory of that was... Uh, that, that you know, was the federal government on the side of Victorians and that's going to be a massive problem for them, I think. Mm.
2: In terms of the the second part of the question, does it make Albanese's leadership more precarious? Would it be an asset for Labor to be led by someone born and bred outside of Sydney and Melbourne? Um... I don't think so. I mean generally Sydney and Melbourne are where most of the voters and votes are, so it probably helps if your leader is from there. And I think it's notable though that Anthony Albanese has managed to avoid being locked down over these last few months. So he's been zipping around the country, spending a lot of time in Queensland, which we know will be, you know, a really key state in the outcome of this election. Um, so he's been trying to make himself seem to be very much there and present and interested in the uh, issues and concerns of Queenslanders and um I so I think you know, he is aware of that, that uh, Scott Morrison at the moment seems to be a little, little rusted on to New South Wales. That's the perception. He's trying to do everything he can to make it clear that he's interested in everywhere else. Yeah, that's
1: that's exactly what what his strategy is. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't think Anthony Albanese's identity other than talking about the rabbitos too much matters too much, <laughs> which I've always thought, you know, less about the rabbitos mate. You know, there is a code called the AFL which is superior. Uh, send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag the party room or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au.
2: Yeah, and remember car and the swans. No, no I remember follow the party room <laughs> on the ABC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. Go the pies.
1: Um, And uh, that's it for the party room this week. Fran, always a delight hanging out with you. And I know that you actually enjoy hanging out with me a bit more at the moment because you haven't got that much else on. Exactly. Bring it on. Anyone will do. See you, PK. Any port in a storm. See ya.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.